This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Hello, everybody. My name is Grace Damon. I don't need to do My name is Grace Damon. Um, I was a resident at Green Gulch Farm for about 27 years. And now I live at uh, the Redwoods, which is a senior living facility in Mill Valley, California. I'm very grateful to Mary Stair, the head of practice, who uh, invited me to speak long ago. Who would have ever known that today being Gay Pride Day is unlike anything other Gay Pride Day. That's why I put the flag behind me. Anyway, there's no parade, but we're going to have a parade, okay? I no longer have the light, airy feeling that I, which I had when I began working on this talk. That light feeling was fueled by fond memories, political certainty, and that's always dangerous. Certainty, certainty. I awoke yesterday feeling fear. My fear is for you who live and work at Zen Center and for all the people who live and work at the Redwoods. My fear is having to give solicited advice on the COVID crisis. So I come to you not so confident, but unknowing. And isn't that the way we always should be, always are and always should be. I'll begin with the political realities, which give me hope at this point. I'll then move to my Buddhist practices, which are much more elusive and complex. And they can help weigh um, a lot by my connection with people I love and who have fed me on this topic. And I'm nurtured by transmission beyond words, beyond picking and choosing, beyond providing answers, but letting me find my own questions, forcing me to find my own answers. Isn't that what's being asked of all of us today? In any case, I hope to share some of my process to provide openings for all of you. That is my hope. Many years ago, I spent this day on the back of a Harley Davidson motorcycle. It was a thousand cc and it had a great, great beautiful picture of a feather painted on the otherwise austere silver gas tank. My lover also had the same feather tattooed on her foot. She was always part of the bike, Dykes on Bikes flotilla, and it was so much fun. Gay men and lesbians were walking hand in hand, barely clad. It was hot as Hades, as I remember. It was before HIV had hit, and life was very good. For those of us who were coming out, it was a real sense of relief to be among those like ourselves and a real sense of being and coming home. After college, which I, um, after college years before, I had been in the East Coast working on Mayor Lindsay's reelection campaign and I was living in the West Village. It was 1969 and I just happened to live three doors down from Stonewall. 
So on that day, which is actually tomorrow, June 28, 1969, um, began the gay rights movement formally in the United States. I didn't exactly participate, but I certainly watched from near up to see what was going on. A little history. Stonewall was not exactly a bar, more it was a gay club. They didn't have a license to sell liquor. So what they would do is they would stuff an envelope full of money each week. Police would come and collect it because of course they were serving liquor without a license. It was called Gayola. They also, because it was owned by the mafia, the mafia decided quickly on that um, might be worth blackmailing some of the gay wealthy men from Wall Street who frequented that facility. Up to the, that night, 1969, they'd always had ample opportunity to know the police raids were happening, meaning the police would always tell them, look, there's gonna be a raid early in the evening. We'll just take your liquor, we'll put it in one of the squad cars, another squad car will come and take off a few citizens, but it'll all be back to normal within half an hour. Anyway, on that particular night, somebody messed up. Either they forgot to pay them off or whatever, or the mafia got irritated because they weren't making any money so they refused to pay the police off. They were making a lot of money, blackmailing gay white men. Um, so they came to Stonewall about 2 a.m. And by that point, it being a hot night, a big crowd had gathered outside once they emptied out Stonewall. And somebody began singing, We Shall Overcome. It was very peaceful initially. I remember Bob Dylan was there, Dave Van Ronk was there. It was a big time in the West Village. Uh, Norman Mailer was there, et cetera, et cetera. Eventually, uh, the two, one day turned to three days of very fierce fighting. So that's why we celebrate Gay Pride Day at the end of June every year, because the first Gay Pride celebration was in 1970 in San Francisco, New York. Hence, it's the 50th Gay Pride Day today. Uh, it all got rather confusing when a lesbian said very loudly as she was being carried to a police car, you guys get up and do something. And then everybody did something. So the fighting continued. But thinking back on that time, that was the mid 70s, um, the first LGBTQ, not Q then, was developed in Los Angeles in the early 1970s. Mike Douglas went on television saying American people thought that homosexuality was the biggest underminer of public good, way above adultery, abortion, uh, or prostitution. In 1978, Harvey Milk was elected as the first openly elected 
gay supervisor, and he was inaugurated in January of 1978. A deep political issue was dividing America at that time because locally gays had won a lot of concessions. But Anita Bryant was the representative of the rollback effort. That rollback effort in San Francisco took the form of Prop 6 for the Briggs Initiative, which would have made it illegal for any openly gay, lesbian, uh, gay teacher, teacher's aide, counselor, administrator, or people supporting gay rights to teach in public schools. We all thought it was going to pass. So that's how radically conservative we were at that point, 1978. In any case, Harvey Milk was a big proponent of the anti-Briggs initiative, and he spoke throughout the country. The Briggs initiative was defeated in November of 1978. Three weeks later, Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone were assassinated by another member of the Board of Supervisors, Dan White. I can remember that night in 1978, 30,000 people walked by candlelight silently from the Castro down Market Street to City Hall. It was wonderful. It was like no other event I've ever experienced, except maybe because I was a teenager then, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in um, Washington, D.C. In any case, the worst riot in the gay movement happened several days later, several months later, when uh, Harvey Milk's, no, when Dan White's um, verdict was announced. 1981 saw the first publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the Bible to those of us doctors, which said it named a disease that many gay men in both Los Angeles, New York, and San Francisco think. It was called acquired immune deficiency syndrome, and thus it birthed the name AIDS. Ryan White, a child himself, became the poster child for the AIDS epidemic in 1984. He'd gotten AIDS through faulty transfusion. So by the mid-1980s, AIDS was running rampant through San Francisco and was particularly powerful and left many of us with uh, no idea as to what to expect, what caused it, what had happened, whether it would ever end what we were supposed to do, what we could do in providing something that was helpful. Does this sound familiar to people? So that's where we are today. I'm struck personally by how little my gay identity matters or feels relevant at this point. I have a female partner and had one for about 45 years. And yet, and yet it feels very odd to consider myself gay. I went through all the torture, turmoil, coming out, losing advantages, being discriminated against precisely because I was gay. And I might add, I suffered not at all, very little. 
But at 73, my pension for self-definition is way down on the totem pole of my favorite activities. But the history of the gay movement and what it's been able to accomplish in a relatively short period of time is absolutely phenomenal. When you consider it, who would have ever thought 10 years ago that LGBTQ people would have job protection? Whoever thought 20 years ago that gay people would be able and encouraged to marry one another? Would have ever thought that Anderson Cooper would be on the cover of People magazine saying he was so happy because he never thought he could adopt or have a gay child. Read a poem recently, which may or may not have much to do with the topic at hand, but it certainly has grabbed me. It's called Grindstone Lou. Zen koans, I'm sure you've all know, are considered teaching devices in which a student and a teacher engage in some kind of combat about some facet of reality, which is either understood or not understood by either one or both of them. They're very relational. That's what I can say. They're very relational. And it requires at least two people together exploring the nature of reality. So this is the case. Case 60. Iron grinder Lu went to Guishan and said, Guishan said, old cow, you come. The iron grinder said, tomorrow on Taishan, there's a big feast and gathering. Are you going, teacher? Guishan lay down and sprawled out. The iron grinder immediately left. What does that mean? It helps to understand the grindstone, the iron grinder Lu is one of the few women mentioned specifically in the Book of Serenity. She's never described as a woman with breasts and or children. There are a few defining marks that accompany her. She was a student of Guishan who himself had 50 to 60 transmitted disciples. So he was a big teacher. She apparently was head of the lot. She also was a powerful teacher in her own right and had a reputation of being a fierce Dharma combatant. She would chew monks up and spit them out hence iron grinder. She lived close to her teacher. So what's really going on here? Also, I might add that this feast that she asked her teacher, are you going to, was 600 miles away. And this is the year 843 AD. So how in the hell was he possibly going to get there? In other words, is this just a senseless question? What does it mean? She asks a question, he sprawls out, she leaves. There's a dance going on here, a wordless dance, familiar and oh so intimate. She is a female, he's a male. She is a student, he is a teacher. She is a teacher, he is a student. I find this kind of intimacy and in dance so appealing in this particular time. This koan 
took several of my self-clinging identities, student, woman, man, teacher, and moved them to the side. I'll explain later exactly what did that. I believe that these times are so important and identities such as these are exactly what we all have to work with. And I do believe that Buddhism has so much to offer right now and has been so helpful in keeping my hope alive that things really can and do change and that we really are capable of change. Mary Stairs recently um, conducted a practice period, which I participated in from afar, uh, based on the Lojong training, the 59 mind slogan. They are a very specific way and a clear path, train the mind. The end result is to develop bodhicitta, or love and compassion. Mind taming, taming is a Hinayana discipline which is involved in taming the mind. And it comes from sitting zazen, comes from practice as we know it. Once the mind is tamed, we can move on to the mahayana on a practice of actual mind training. Lojong is one of those training systems. The first slogan in mind training is train in the preliminaries. For me, the preliminary include and are founded on the Four Noble Truths. So let's revisit them. I'm going to read them to you because I love this particular version, which is done by the Dalai Lama and Bhikkhu Bodhi. The first noble truth is that of suffering. Birth is true suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. The second noble truth, the origin or cause of suffering, is this. It is this craving, thirst, for sense pleasures, passionate greed, and wanting to extinguish what we dislike. The third noble truth, which is called the cessation of suffering, is this. It is the complete cessation of that very craving, relinquishing, liberating, and detaching oneself from it. And the fourth noble truth is the path of cessation of suffering is the eightfold path and nothing else, namely right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The methodology of training the mind is what drew me to Buddhism and has become my medicine for treating myself clinging that leads to unhappiness, racism, violence, and climate change, to name a few. These are the issues that we are all being asked to deal with at this particular time. How can we train the mind? Lojong training with the 59 slogans is one means Within Zen Center, we practice an additional means. We sit in the middle of the flame and we vow to save all sentient beings. Can we use our minds to train ourselves out of these dilemmas? I believe we can in many ways. 
how you answer this question is going to fuel you with either hope or deep sorrow and regret. I do feel that change is possible, that by looking deeply inward, I and we are going to be able to affect kind of change which can lead to a different world. The components of that change, as Richard Davidson, a neuroscientist and Tibetan Buddhist, said are number one, awareness, number two, connection, number three, insight into our repeated stories that we construct about ourselves, and number four, sense of purpose. I can't help this. I'm fascinated by brain biochemistry from my many years as a physician. But as Davidson points out, the brain is very plastic and the data is in and the literature is there and change is possible. It does take place and it doesn't take much time. It certainly takes the belief and faith that change is possible, which for we as Buddhists shouldn't be difficult because change is inevitable. And is it, isn't it radical and permanent that we're seeing everywhere we look these days? And most of all, it takes practice, which means doing it day after day after day. And what is it? Good question. For me, it is living by that vow with awareness and the intention to save all sentient beings. We all exhibit and participate in two levels of reality, sometimes simultaneously, often without awareness. At the level of conventional reality, for example, I am a woman, a doctor, disabled person, mother, gay, Buddhist. I am also white, privileged, and have raised a biracial child and been grandmother to several biracial children. Uh, have caused harm in those important relationships by not investigating fully race. I did take my lesbian identity seriously at one point. And what happened to change that? First of all, we had the AIDS epidemic, which decimated most of San Francisco. I was a young doctor in training at that time. And I remember running the beta breakers. I had no business doing. I had not put my running shoes on for two years. I was 35. I'd been up all night. But nonetheless, I did it because I thought I was invincible. And of course, I wasn't. So at Heartbreak Hill, which is almost at the beginning of the race, I started crying. And I thought, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can finish. And I noticed a young man running beside me said, you can do it, I'll pace you. Just, I'll pace you. Breathe when I breathe, I'll pace you. And he did, and I did. And I finished the race. I never should have, but I did finish. And lo and behold, he was admitted to my service in the emergency room two weeks later. From there, he went to the ICU, and he died several weeks after that. He had AIDS undiagnosed, and he died of complications of AIDS. That kind of thing would not happen today. It was up close and personal, and therefore became, for me, universal. 
when we started the AIDS unit at Laguna Honda in 1990 for persons infected with HIV in San Francisco, we would admit people, about 30 a month, and about a third of them would die. We never knew who. So we signed over a thousand death certificates in three years. That doesn't happen today. We're almost at zero new cases in San Francisco. I think for the year 2019, there were 197 new cases. But at the height of the epidemic, by the end of 2004, there were 940,000 cases and there were 529,000 deaths. That's a big change. Yes, it happens in Black America. Yes, it happens in South Africa. Yes, it, and it does not happen in San Francisco. And that's all about racial inequality, inequality of access to healthcare. So things have changed. We are weathering this earlier epidemic. We are learning to manage it as a chronic disease, at least here. I have a daughter who was born with it, who's now 27 years old. Life expectancy was about two months when she was born. She's 27 and thriving. And as a gay woman, I lived at the beginning of the gay identified movements within San Francisco, Prop 6, RV Milk's election and death, the beginning of the AIDS Foundation, the beginning of the women's movement, the beginning of the women's foundation, beginning of domestic violence program. We lived through the era of the quilt movement, which like today involved saying people's name directly. I saw a sign last week at the corner that said, say his name, say her name. We all have said George Floyd, George Floyd. At the beginning of the struggle against the Defense of Marriage Act in 2005, it seemed it would be impossible for gays to ever form legitimate family structures. Of course, we were already doing it, but to have societal and cultural support, I never thought that was gonna be possible. And on the one hand, Fu and I never could have adopted and raised the group had the tenor of the time not changed. If you want to see a history of this, ABC did a very good series presented about two years ago called When We Rise. that has a lot of local heroes and heroines. Gives a very good sense of this period in history in San Francisco. In any event, the Supreme Court struck down Dome in 2015 and then ever since in the United States, life has been very different for gay families and it will be different forevermore. And it happened relatively quickly, all things considered. Why was that true? Why could we fight effectively for marriage equality and still haven't been able to pass the ERA? much less acknowledge and deal effectively with institution and systemic racism. Another question, is it because white men were so active in the gay movement? Who knows? What we do need to know is that change is possible. 
even when we don't understand all of the what, I certainly believe that change is possible. I had the great fortune to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama on several occasions. And my visceral experience of him is that he's a very ordinary human being, just, just like you and me. But what he, and he has truly suffered, but what he has managed to do is to deal with and practice with the contents of his mind, thoughts and deeds, so that he doesn't create as many problems as most of us do. This is mind practice and training. So how does this mind training happen? That is a very simple and complex question at the same time. First, it involves the intention or commitment to change. We chant at the end of this talk, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. By repetition, that becomes embedded in our brain. It's like the Lojong slogans in Mary's teaching about them. Repetition helps. I learned as a young mother that to get my child to eat broccoli, Theoretically, I was supposed to introduce it 15 times. The book said 15 trials was the magic number to get the brain to encode the change from dislike to like. If you try to get kids to eat vegetables, by the 15th time, it may happen. In Sabrina's case, it didn't. But she did come to love Brussels sprouts, salad, and wasabi peas, all of which are green. The repetition of this behavior helps strengthen the connections between various neurons. And what we say in medicine is neurons that wire, wire together, wire together, which means every time one of those neurons is challenged, it goes down the same pathway, thus strengthening that particular pathway. This is in part why we sit. Each time we hit the wall of pain and survive it, either by moving or not, we learn something else. We learn that everything really does change. Hell one moment becomes bliss the next. And the Lojong slogans, which Mary introduced us to, are a very specific way to train the mind. The end result is to develop more compassion. So what exactly is compassion? Good question. I would say that compassion is quite different from goodness alone. It functions freely without no, any sense of separation between the doer and the thing that is done. If someone falls, you pick them up. It's the same intimacy in which there is no knowing. There's no separation. It comes out of wisdom. Wisdom is the realization of no separation. Compassion is the activity that comes out of this realization. So it's different from doing good in that it's free. I am hopeful, because, perhaps because I'm of a different era. I am 73 years old, and what I'm searching for is a way to live and understand being myself at 73. Perhaps that way, why Grindstone Lou is so appealing. She takes on separateness and identity with such a lack of separateness 
and identity. She doesn't expect her teacher to save her. She has been there. She has traveled. She has come and gone. There's obviously a very playful, compassionate relationship between these two. When he lies down on the ground, she walks away. There really isn't anything more for her to do. She's not walking away in disgust or distress. She just walks away. He calls her old cow. <laughs> Interesting. Which it becomes a term of endearment and not something special. Relationships are about coming and going. Aren't they about mirroring one another completely and not getting lost in words? It's a transmission beyond transmission. So as I give this talk today, I think whatever way we can be beacons for people, let's do it. It's really important to keep questioning, keep asking, who are we? What is our deepest intention? Especially what is being asked of us? But ask yourself and answer yourself. That's what Zazen is all about. Be the master of yourself. The answer is within the questions themselves. The answer is within you, not in some abstraction or some doctrine, but in this very life itself. I'm remembering back to those days on the back of the Harley Davidson dykes on bikes that felt very much that way. Then there were the frightening times with Harvey Milk and the AIDS epidemic. And finally, there was the time of recognition based on speaking people's names, i.e. sewing them on quilt square, and the shared recognition that virtually everyone came to, that someone in their family was represented on that quilt. That same kind of familial recognition led to many straight people acknowledging that love should win, and love did win. And same-sex couples were given the same opportunity to create family within social and cultural support. My family of origin has a Friday night Zoom meeting and has done that totally during this pandemic. All of the siblings, all of our co children, co-parents of those siblings have met for an hour every Friday night, sometimes to play games, sometimes to complain, Sometimes it's boring, but I can't remember a time when we've been as connected. Who sent out a YouTube link that featured Ibram Kendi, who wrote uh, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And last week, my brother-in-law raised the question to the group, how are you dealing with your racist feeling? How are you dealing with institutional racism? And, you know, beside the fact that I have a niece who's living in Minneapolis, um, to a person, my siblings were totally astounding. My brother is a blues musician who's played with African Americans for his whole life, said, I feel so sad. I haven't gotten it. I never got it. I thought I got it. I'm just beginning to realize that I haven't gotten it. Maybe I'm just beginning to get it. Maybe not, but I am so sorry I haven't gotten it.
to a person that sorrow was so palpable in our family. And it wasn't sorrow for how we treated blacks or people of color. It was mostly sorrow for ourselves and sorrow for the whole world that this was the situation we we're all going to deal with for the rest of our lives. And that kind of compassion, that kind of sorrow can, I believe, lead to compassion, which is taking up the bodhisattva. I firmly believe that love once again can win. I'm grateful that I have that belief and faith in the power of change. I've watched his holiness and felt keenly a love permeates everything and everyone in his around. Being with him is like being on the receiving end, constant tonglon practice. For me, the vow that we take at the end of this lecture is the center point of my life. Beings are numberless, I about to say them, a big order. But, and I feel so grateful that I have this order. Gives me a sense of purpose and a roadmap how to travel in these very uncertain times. As we navigate these seemingly impossible waters of hatred, institutional racism, and deadly disease and climate change, I would hope that all of us receive the transmission without words, which gives us hope. There was some way that running the beta breakers, because it was so intensely and profoundly personal, changed the way I dealt with the AIDS epidemic from that point forward. There is some way in which my having been patient for over a year has really changed the way I practice medicine. There is some way in which everybody's saying, I thought I got it, but I'm only now beginning to see that is a transmission and may change the way we behave. And then there's something about that transmission that occurred in that nine minute tape that the brave young woman made holding her iPhone, directing it right at the officer's face that transmitted his behavior in a way that's not erasable. It's beyond words. It's inescapable and beyond the confusion that words can impose. I have hope because so much has changed that day since I rode with dykes on bikes 48 years ago. I never would have expected the change. It was the dependent co-arising of compassion fueled by many people, many agendas, and no particular commander. It did not happen without great cost. And the same thing is happening now and can happen now. I trust the upwelling from the bottom from the young people. I believe in Buddhism. I believe in the power to change through my Buddhist practice. It has worked for me. Love change demands more compassion than most of us can muster in a day, much less in a lifetime. Real change starts right here with us. Thank heavens there are role models in my life and there are examples in my life. The Dalai Lama gives me hope in this practice, the arc of history toward moral justice, 
gives me hope in the political realm and Grindstone Lou with her light touch and complete sureness makes it almost seem fun. This is not a time that any of us can afford to be complacent. We have to dedicate ourselves to engagement, both with ourselves and the community at large. That engagement must be founded on looking deeply within our own minds and body and weeding out the weeds, thoughts, words, and action. We can do it, and hopefully we will do it. We may not see them, but hopefully our children will see the fruits of our efforts. As Suzuki Roshi said, if you are patient enough, if you are strong enough to accept your problems, then you can sit calmly and peacefully, trusting Buddha and trusting your own being. So the only way is to trust Buddha and to trust your own being. That is what we call Zen. And this is part of the reason why I'm so grateful to Zen Center. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.